I think we have increasing expressions of a powerful sense of belonging to a particular religious community, even if levels of actual religious belief, like belief in heaven or hell or in the resurrection, are waning. Welcome to the Eliamep podcast series. In this podcast, we're going to have a different discussion, a discussion about religion and Europe. I have the great pleasure to welcome in our series of podcasts, Dr. Efi Fokas, Senior Research Fellow in Eliamep and an expert in religion, religion and law and cultural politics. Dr. Fokas, thank you very much for finding the time for this discussion. Thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Odin, and engaging with the work of Eliamet. <laughs> Thank I, you, Effie. Yeah, I also want to congratulate you on the timing of your attention to this topic, given that, as you know, we're currently in the midst of a rare convergence of celebrations in the three different faiths of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Yesterday, of course, Western Christianity celebrated Easter. In Judaism, Passover is commemorated this week. And in Islam, this is the penultimate week of Ramadan, which ends 21st of April. Very unfortunately, and perhaps unsurprisingly, this convergence has also seen heightened tension between the faiths, in particular between Muslims and Jews who share holy spaces for each faith at the Al-Aqsa mosque compound or Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Israeli police raids at the mosque last week provoked missile attacks from Lebanon, as I know you know, which in turn led to Israeli missiles launched against Hamas targets in Lebanon and in the Gaza Strip. So contrary to sociological theory, which prevailed before the wake-up calls of the Iranian revolution in 1979 and before the flourishing of a politicized evangelical Protestantism in the U.S. in the 1980s onwards, So contrary to the theory of secularization, which predicted that religion would decline in inverted proportion to modernity spread, in fact, today, religion in 2023 is incredibly prevalent in public life in many parts of the world. So that is my first question. And you already put it in a serious context, Effie, because I was going to ask you that in Europe, there have been a lot of controversies and debates around the place of religion in the public sphere. But... Is religion retreating uh, in Europe? You said to us now that no, it's not retreating. And I'm asking that because if religion is coming back with force because of the big crisis that we face, pandemic, war on European soil, migration, and maybe not only in Europe, because, because we spoke about the whole world now. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, well, I'll start with the European context. And I'd say that both are true in a sense. It is true that religion is retreating in Europe in the sense that historically majority faiths have attracted fewer and fewer churchgoers over the years. So all over Western Europe, for example, we've seen gorgeous, huge churches with their stained glass windows turn into hip nightclubs, for example. Um, and simultaneously, we've had vibrancy in minority religious faith and practice, especially through immigrant communities, be they African Pentecostals or Afghani Muslims. But also, and very much closely related to the crises you mentioned, we've also had a whole lot of religion in the European public sphere connected with nationalism and or populism. So Viktor Orban in Hungary, Matteo Salvini in Italy, um, Mateusz Morawiecki in Poland, amongst others, have all used a religious nationalism in their discourse, largely taking advantage of public unrest uh, arising in the context of the financial crisis, the refugee crisis, and COVID. So they have also, rather disturbingly, echoed Donald Trump's motto and have pledged to make Europe great again uh, through an explicit rejection of liberalism and a plan to return Europe to its original Christian values. 
In this, they've contributed to what I would describe as a crisis of illiberalism facing Europe, which I think should not be underestimated. And you're right, it's not only Europe. We have, you know, our um, Bolsonaro's and or we did uh, in the Brazilian context and Trump had and uh, hopefully will not have again in the, in the U.S. context. This is certainly not limited to the European context. So, particularly in Europe, uh, the presence of Islam has been a catalyst for many debates. And we have seen that for many years, not only in France, but in the whole of Europe. Uh, about the nature of religious communities, their relationship to state institutions. Do you think that Europe is Christian? And I'm going to use, um, I'm asking you that because I'm going to use the title of the book by Olivier Roy. And that is why there are so many difficulties regarding Islam, because we are Christian. That's a really difficult uh, question, Odin, and it depends, I'd say, to a certain extent on one's understanding of what it means to be Christian. Islam has indeed acted as a catalyst for debates around religion, and it has provoked many expressions of conservative, reactionary, and I would say superficial Christianity. Uh, a vocal defense of state-displayed nativity scenes or of religious symbols in public spaces, essentially defense of cultural Christianity. That's one thing. And uh, two, two terms coined by my friend and colleague, Grace Davy are rather pertinent here. Uh, the first is uh, the inverse of her notion of believing without belonging. Now, uh, Grace Davy was writing in 1994 about religion in Britain since 1994, um, so, sorry, since 1945. And she was describing in that text uh, trends in British Christianity whereby people's religiosity was changing in nature, in many cases becoming more spiritual and more alternative, and in most cases it was less and less expressed through belonging to the Anglican Church. Now in the contemporary context and in many parts of Europe, I think we have increasing expressions of a powerful sense of belonging to a particular religious community, even if levels of actual religious belief, like belief in heaven or hell or in the resurrection, are waning, and if levels of religious practice also, like going to church, are waning. So um, here, the second term coined by Grace Davy is applicable, and this is uh, vicarious religion. I don't know if you've heard of this term before. Um, it's the notion that only a minority in a given society may be religiously active, but there may also be a large, what she calls silent majority in that same society, which is inactive religiously, but to whom it is important that minority, that that minority, religiously active minority exists and keeps the faith alive. We have, I'd say in many spaces in Europe, rather powerful psychological attachments to our religious institutions. We want them to exist, even if we don't directly participate in their activities. I'd say this may be a bit of a stretch of Davy's concept, but I hear echoes of vicarious religion in the discourse of some Greek parents who do not go to church or do not raise their children based on religious principles, but they really actively defend the mandatory teaching of the Orthodox faith in public schools. This takes me back to the question that you started with, really, uh, the question of Islam as a catalyst for debates around and defense of Christian Europe. Growing atheist movements, too, across Europe have also acted as a catalyst for such debates and defenses. Atheist challenges to Christian Europe were behind um, Greek legal battles over religious education that I just mentioned. And they were also behind legal battles over the display of the crucifix on Italian school walls. So that's also a factor, I think, to be considered. But finally, there's another interesting and important dimension to the question of Islam as a catalyst. And um, this has to do with the presence of large Muslim communities in different parts of Europe and the ways that they have caused reactions amongst secularist publics, too, to whom any conspicuous religiosity is unwelcome. 
So reactions to the Muslim presence looks different in France, for example, where public display of one's faith identity through religious dress, i.e. through the wearing of the headscarf in schools, has been targeted. And different again in Sweden, it looks different in other contexts like Northern Europe, where concerns about gender equality underpin, for example, Swedish women's complaints that Muslim men refuse to shake their hands, even in professional contexts. So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mix, I'd say, across uh, the European context in this regard. Now, when, when we talk about freedom of religious expression, what exactly do we mean, uh, Effie? And do we Europeans regard Christianity different than the other religions? Do we believe that being Christian is being better than uh, than the others? And and in that issue, you mentioned how we teach uh, and here in Greece, the Orthodox Church in 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 the schools. And I wanted to ask you now: we see what is going on in Hungary and in Poland and in Malta with uh, abortion rights, with abolishing abortion. Is that anything to do also with how we regard religion? Are these leaders using religion? so that uh, we don't have our freedoms as we had them in the years before? Yes, um, I'd say that's a that's a very significant concern um, that we need to have. And it's what I mentioned basically earlier, this, this uh, trend towards illiberalism, which uh, is not limited to the European context, but we've seen it increasingly. In a, and even in the Greek context, um, it's, it's hard to understand the extent to which developments here have been echoes of, say, anti-abortion debates in the U.S. context, but we've had kind of the beginning uh, and uh, a quick end to different developments around uh, abortion rights in the Greek context, which, you know, it's, it's difficult to know how much uh, circulation of, uh, of discourse and of actions of different activist groups is going on behind the scenes um, in across Europe and transnationally, you know, uh, sorry, transatlantic and transatlantic terms as well. Um, but I wanted to start first, though, get to that question that you started with about freedom of religious expression. I want to kind of tease out the fact that there are two different relevant freedoms there. So uh, on the one hand, freedom of religion or belief, because you said freedom of religious expression. So freedom of religion uh, itself includes the right to manifest your religion, to express it in particular ways. And so that could be through religious dress. So that may um, you know, be understood as a form of religious expression. Um, and the European Commission on Human Rights uh, uh, protects this freedom by through Article 9. Um, Article 9 of the European Commission on Human Rights protects freedom of belief. But then separately, you also have, separately but also sometimes related, you have the freedom of expression, which is protected by Article 10 of the European Convention, and that entails the right to hold opinions and receive and share information and ideas without interference by public authorities. So that's the right, you know, where the freedom of the press is uh, protected also. And it applies generally well beyond the space of religion. So I'd say in relation to both of these freedoms, uh, here too, Islam has acted as a catalyst for debates. The presence of large Muslim communities in parts of Europe has provoked two major debates regarding freedom of expression. And one has to do with what I mentioned before, you know, the, the wearing of, um, of uh, the, the right of Muslims to wear religious dress, either in schools or in universities or in the workplace or on the street. All of those topics have been addressed uh, by court cases. And um, the other dimension really has to do with, uh, at least in part, with the whole mess that arose around the publication of cartoons satirizing the Prophet Muhammad. Um, first, you know, through the, the Danish newspaper Hillens Posten, uh, and then especially through the reproductions of those and other um, cartoons by the French satirical journal Charlie Hebdo. 
So in relation to that story in particular, we've had really intense debates across Europe and beyond regarding whether expression should be limited to protect religious sensitivities. And some countries have introduced hate speech laws that are rather reminiscent of the anti-blasphemy laws that some countries, including ours, only recently rid ourselves of. So it's, um, yeah, I'd say it's a, it's another story that begins in some cases, uh, in some ways superficially in relation to Islam, but really has unfolded to be uh, something very disturbing and, um, and widespread to do with uh, tensions around what it means to really respect the freedom of expression and what instead is kind of a provocation of, of religious tensions is more of a reaction to uh, a religious other in the, in the European context. Well, in that regard, does the European Court of Human Rights play uh, a big role? Its decisions can can influence state decisions and, and debates. When uh, the court makes a decision, I think, must the countries uh, obey the decisions of the uh, European Court of Human Rights? Well, they, they should, of course, uh, but unfortunately, the, the court doesn't have a great deal of uh, power to uh, enforce decisions. Um, and uh, so to a large extent, it has to do with countries uh, simply taking that decision to respect this European institution. And uh, it puts the court in a very pre- precarious position. It has to be careful not to be too interventionist and therefore lose the support of individual countries, like it lost basically with the UK. You know, the UK, the kind of anti-Europeanism that led to Brexit uh, had, a, had a very powerful precursor in um, resistances to the European Court of Human Rights and limitations that it was placing on on uh, on the UK, uh, first in the case to do with prisoners' voting rights. So um, the court is uh, has to be very very mindful of, of finding this delicate balance. And I don't mean to say that it's you know continuously uh, censoring itself, but at the same time it it has to, and in fact it's part of the way that it functions to reach a certain level of consensus to get a sense of what the consensus is across the countries um, that it serves. And, and take decisions accordingly. Um, but so where does the European Court of Human Rights fit in in all this context? Uh, on the one hand, you have um, that dimension of the extent to which its, its decisions are implemented. And the other you asked, you know, how much are these decisions important in terms of um, setting the public debate, basically? And here, you know, you've hit one of my favorite topics because of my years-long research at El Yamep on this court's engagements with issues to do with religion. And through that research, one of the most um, troubling findings really is how little people actually knew about this court and its decisions. Most of the people we interviewed um, across four different countries uh, tended to confuse the court with an EU institution, whereas it's not an EU institution. It belongs to the Council of Europe. It represents the, the Council of Europe and defends the European Convention on Human Rights. And as we know, the Council of Europe is not limited to the EU 27 states. It's um, over 40 states and uh, covers over 800 uh, million people across uh, uh, well beyond the European, strictly European context. And so it's a different institution altogether. Um Although, of course, membership in the EU requires also uh, becoming a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, but still, it's a, it's a different institution. And and many, many of our respondents confused uh, the European Court of Human Rights with an EU institution. But most importantly, they had fairly little awareness, even people who were representing particular religious minorities, 
that have had uh, major uh, limitations on religious freedoms in different country contexts, even they, they often were not too familiar with particular cases uh, that the court had handled and particular rights that had been established for all of us by this court. So um, that is uh, that is one uh, dimension. Um, now, for, for us in Greece especially, I think it's fascinating to know that um, the first case that the European Court of Human Rights handled to do with religion, the first uh, decision actually, the first judgments that it issued, finding a violation of religious freedom was against the state of Greece. Um, and this was, interestingly, 34 years after it had already been operating. So in its first 34 years of operation, this court had issued zero judgments on Article 9, you know, on religious freedom. But then in 1993, a case came before it that it could no longer... Um, uh, that it could it could no longer basically avoid the issue of religion, which of course <laughs> no longer ignore it. Could no longer ignore it. <laughs> couldn't turn a blind eye to this particular case. It was the case of a man named Manos Kokinakis, who was a Jehovah's Witness uh, in Crete, and he had been arrested over sixty times for the crime of proselytism. So um, this man was vindicated through the, by the European Court of Human Rights, uh, and after that first case, it really opened the uh, the floodgates of the court. And then the next, um, say, by, by the next seven years, by the year 2000, it had issued uh, seven more judgments, um, finding violations of, of religious freedom. Uh, notably, all but one of those addressed the state of Greece. So it's, um, it's, I'd say it's a particularly important court in relation to religious freedoms in Greece. And simultaneously, you could say Greece has been a particularly important country in helping shape that court's uh, early case law you know, on religious freedom. And uh, you start off by asking about Islam and whether it's treated somehow differently. Um, in relation to Islam, the court has, I'd say, an extremely controversial record. And indeed, it has to be criticized, and it has been criticized by me too, um, of differential treatment of Islam versus Christianity. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has ruled that a Muslim teacher could not wear a headscarf while she was teaching in a primary public school because the scarf would be perceived as an act of religious symbols as an act of religious symbol, even though no parents or children at that school had complained about it, whereas at the same time, that same court has ruled that the display of the Christian crucifix on public school walls is not an active, but it's a passive symbol of uh, religion, um, more representative of cultural heritage than of religion per se, even though parents had complained about the crucifix on the school wall. So that's, um, you know, it, it's, it's rather taboo, I'd say, that it, there has been this kind of differential treatment. Um, similarly, the, the court um, defended the closure of a particular Islam-related political party in Turkey, the Refa Party, in 2003, and it did so with a more or less direct assumption that democracy requires secularism, although nowhere in the European Convention on Human Rights is the court charged with the defense of secularism itself. And um, the, you know, the, the fear of the ref, that the Refa Party might bring Sharia law into play in Turkey was certainly directly addressed by the court. But meanwhile, we had Sharia law in uh, Western Thrace being practiced, you know, mandatorily uh, for the Muslim community there. Um, but this too uh, was brought to an end in uh, 2018 with the help of the European Court of Human Rights, although more precisely, it was really the threat of the intervention by the court that made the Greek state change um, the application of Sharia law right before the, uh, the final judgment was issued. Um, but still, uh, I'd say it's 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 an incredibly important resource 
for religious rights and human rights in general. Um, but I'd say, very unfortunately, an underused resource in a sense that not enough of the of the publics that it addresses um, are aware of this, not, not only of their right to reach that court, because it's not, you know, obviously going through the whole court process is not something that everyone is equally um, equipped to do in terms of time, resources, et cetera, or, or willing to go through that process, but an awareness of your rights that have been established by a court um, could be a significant factor. It's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a negotiation uh, card basically in the context in relation to any uh, public officials who are limiting your rights. If you know that actually this is an affront to rights that have been established for you by the European Court of Human Rights, so um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag as well. Uh, the the potential of that particular court. In 2015, Macron said uh, Europe's religious war on debt must be overcome. Why did he use that terminology? What did he mean exactly by that? And how do also politicians use the word religion and religious? That was a very interesting statement he'd made by then. Uh, in that statement, Macron was referring to the increasingly toxic stereotypes of the peoples of countries like Greece, Italy and Spain, who were blamed for the plight of their countries in the financial crisis. The notion underpending those stereotypes was that there was, in the financial crisis, a clear north-south divide between the quote-unquote prudent Protestant savers versus the overindulgent Catholic and Orthodox spenders. Or again, on the one side, the Protestant creditors versus the Catholic and the Orthodox debtors. <laughs> and essentially, basically, the saints of the north versus the sinners of the south whose sins, those uh, southern uh, sins, um, the northern Europeans were now being called to forgive, basically through forgiveness of debt. Um, I don't think religious terminology was widely applied to the stereotypes abounding around that period, you know, in the financial crisis. And Macron was a bit bold, let's say, to use these terms then, but certainly the broader stereotypes about the hardworking northerners and the lazy southerners and the stingy northerners and the irresponsible southerners were powerful at the time. Um, uh, but you, I think underpinning this is a more general question you're asking about the political uses of religion. Uh, and I think it, it doesn't apply so much to Macron uh, here in terms of um, his own gain, but it applies much more to those to those people who I mentioned before, like the, your Salvinis or um, Orban, who, um, who rest a lot of their uh, politics on their ability to play on people's national sensitivities. And that is unfortunately very, I'd say, still uh, a powerful phenomenon across Europe. Because, um, uh, because I have also the feeling that they use it to, uh, the, um, also regarding migration and the people that are coming, and they are Muslims, uh, and they are using religions in a, in this kind of context, in um, maybe also a racist kind of context. That's why um, they find it that they have to use it to convince their own voters, unfortunately. Yes, yes it's true. Um, and of course, it's uh, disappointing because it's so contrary to uh, the the real message of these religious faiths that they claim to be uh, representing. And uh, of course, those who are, I'd say, actively practicing those faiths in, in, in Hungary and in other countries in Poland as well, they have shown a completely different attitude towards uh, immigrants arriving. So that, that message is, um, it, it's more powerful uh, across 
the what I described that that majority in in Europe who are not necessarily actively practicing Christians, um, but rather are uh, those who can be mobilized on the basis of religion in a more nationalist kind of way. And they are there are many. Now, I feel at the end of the day, what is Christianity's place, potential and real in European life? <laughs> Another difficult question. <laughs> um, as, as I suggested above, it really depends on what we mean by Christianity. Uh, and that really relates to what I was saying before, um, just now, in terms of uh, active faith uh, versus something else. Um, so Christianity, as, as in terms of affiliation with particular Christian churches and active engagements with those churches, is certainly uh, on the decreasing across Europe. And it has been for some time. Christianity, in terms of sincere belief and practice, is, to my mind, uh, difficult to measure, but there are certainly pockets of very vibrant expressions of active and sincere belief in practice across Europe. And those are the you know, groups that I was saying before who've been you know, activist uh, protecting refugees uh, and, and offering their help to them. So I don't think this reflects the majority situation, though. Um, and I also don't think that these pockets are very much helped by majority churches in, in Europe that stay focused on religious messages rather than on nationalist ones or populist ones. So to describe what I think applies to the majority situation, I'll borrow a term from a scholar of nationalism, Michael Billig. Uh, he wrote a book uh, in 1995 called Banal Nationalism. And I'll apply that term uh, to religion and say that there's a whole lot of what could be called banal religion on display in Europe. So that's religion that's all around us. Uh, it's in our schools, religious symbols on our national flags, religious ceremonies taking place in our parliaments, all kinds of connections um, to different levels uh, of formality between church and state. Um, this banal religion will be devoid of re real religious meaning for most people, um, though for many, they may become easily mobilized to defend the place of majority religion in the public sphere if and as they fear that that place may be threatened, either by immigrants or atheists or institutions like the EU or the European Court of Human Rights. Um, so there are different possibilities, Arden, and I certainly uh, am not in the business of prediction. I, I wouldn't be able to say uh, anything with any degree of certainty about the future of Christianity's place uh, in Europe. Um, but I, I'm more interested in drawing uh, attention to to, to try to offer a more nuanced perspective about how many different types of expressions of what comes in the name of Christianity there are across Europe today. And uh, it's difficult to know which will prevail. I think there are many different forces taking us in different directions in that regard. Effie, thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Odin. Thank you for inviting me again. Take good care. This was another Eliamep podcast with Odin Linardatu. Recording, editing and sound editing by Petros Karpathiou. Follow us on the Eliamep channels on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and elsewhere.